So we're back here for part two. Um, last time we discussed, kind of got into a little bit of uh, dispensationalism, pre-mill, Zionism. This time I want to kind of shift gears, uh, talk a little bit about covenant theology, post-millennialism, amillennialism. Um, and part of the reason I'm doing this is because I think it's helpful to see kind of like the different theological positions that are, I would say, um, they all have something going for them. They all fall under orthodoxy. Um, I, they can't all be true, obviously, um, at the same time, because they have, you know, uh, various parts that are, you know, opposed and contradictory to the other viewpoints. But I think, um, you know, the, the, none of them are crazy. They all have historical root in kind of the, the Christian history. Um, and they all, I think, just studying them can help you understand your, even your own perspective better. And then it can also help you understand how it, it um, plays into yours and other people's responses when, they, when issues like this happen with Israel, for instance. Because um, they all kind of connect. You know, they're like threads in a, in a grand uh, tapestry. Um, so... Anyways, uh, hopping into that, I was thinking about an analogy, you know, just one that maybe it's not an analogy, but just a, a scenario that some of you may have faced, you know, it's like you have your, you can imagine like if someone in their fifties just, you know, been, been a Christian a long time ago, it's just run of the mill evangelical Christian and, and something happens with Israel and they're just like, you know, without knowing any of the details and, and, you know, not, not really even thinking through the issue much or just like, you know, get the Israel flag out and they're just gung ho. And anybody that says they're from Israel, you know, any leader or, uh, you know, just movements in that direction and they're just all on board. Um, and that, that's kind of like the, the caricatured version of Zionism. Um, but there are, you know, there are some people that fall toward that end of the spectrum where, they, it's like for them to bless Israel and to be pro-Israel means to never have anything in the way of critique to say about anybody that, that is connected with Israel or anything that the country does or leadership does, um, or to recognize sometimes the complexities involved um, with these types of issues. Um, but then, you know, they encounter the niece who's, you know, third year, uh, university could even be a Christian university these days, and they're they are you know the other end of the opposite end of the spectrum, far out, just you know pro Palestine because they're the oppressed, you know, and and Israel and the West has oppressed the Palestinians, and to the point that they're even you know walking around with with signs at their university and even pro Hamas, um, and so you know you have you have these people and you're like in, in the case of this girl she might have you know little to zero knowledge of the history of you know the the modern state of israel and and their the dealings with palestine and any kind of degree of of sophistication yet you know takes this strong position um and really what's what's involved in both of these scenarios is it's 
where I've kind of flattened it out to a caricature version is the theologies driving them. In the one case, you have the the theology of of wokeness, you know, the the worldview of wokeness that frames everything so you really don't have to know any details. And on the other end, you know, you you might have the uh the the a form of zionism that just hasn't really um hasn't really you know been responsible with with kind of a wise uh more robust understanding of zionism where they could still stand with you know for instance for israel but still recognize hey what's this this guy here is doing and, and saying, you know, I, I disagree with that, but I still, you know, stand with the nation or, you know, hey, yeah, the, there are some there are some stuff going on over here that we we might need to think through as we stand with them, that kind of thing. So um, what I want to what I want to jump into here is is talking more about those theologies and then kind of what's funding this other, uh, I think, group of Christians that might be new to both camps and that is the 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 group that you know they are at the end of the day they're standing with Israel but not on the basis of Zionism but on the basis uh, in a given case of what they would consider as just war theory um whereas they might not think that Israel has much or anything to do with end time events and and anything to do with um old covenant Israel uh, the modern day state of Israel. So, you know, there's different things here that I think would help kind of clarify just having a basic understanding of these various perspectives. So let me go over here to covenant theology real quick and read this. Um, so covenant theology is a doctrine or system of theology explaining the relationship between God and mankind in terms of a compact or covenant also called a federal theology. Theologians who have taught the covenant doctrine have based it on biblical themes, especially God's covenant with Israel as recorded in the Old Testament. Although the concept of covenant is ancient, the rigorous development of an overall systematic covenant theology grew out of the Protestant Reformation. The concept of a covenant, quote-unquote, which is in Latin, uh, foedis, from which is derived federal theology, as it was generally understood at the time of the Reformation, meant a compact between two or more parties by which they solemnly obligated themselves to each other to accomplish a particular task. This concept was utilized as a theological construct by 16th century Reformed theologians, particularly John Calvin, 1509-1564, through Ulrich Zwingli, 1484 to 1531, and Johann Heinrich Bullinger, uh, 1504 to 1575. Anabaptists also developed a doctrine of covenant primarily referring to the union of believers with each other. Reformed covenant theology has taught that God offers grace and salvation to mankind. To those who, by faith, accept God's offer of salvation on his terms, he assuredly grants salvation. Thus, mankind gains assurance from its covenant relationship with God. Although there are many variations, theologians have discerned three covenants in Scripture, the covenant of works offered to Adam, which he failed, the covenant of grace offered after the fall of Adam, again to Abraham and renewed in Christ, and for some theologians, the covenant of redemption, the eternal promise of God's salvation underlying the covenant of grace. 
The covenant approach to theology strongly affected English Puritanism, and through Puritanism's influence in the New World, came to have a significant sorry a significant influence in America. One of the trademarks of Puritan theology, it is an it is evident in the writings of such Puritan giants as Perkins, Finner, Sibbs, Preston, Ames, and the separatist Brown. The appeal of the covenant among Puritans of England and America was varied, but most noteworthy was its rational and easily understood organizational structure. Moreover, the doctrine offered absolute assurance of God's eternal graciousness. Moreover, uh, since Many English and American Puritans were involved in the commercial and political world with its many compacts and contracts. The preacher's use of covenant contextualized theology in terms of their everyday world and spoke to them in a special way. Although Puritans did not invent covenant theology, they did make good use of it. The writings of William Ames, the English Puritan theologian and university professor were an important means for spreading the covenant method of theology in both England and America. His Medulla Theologiae, Theolo- Theologiae uh, 1627, known in many English editions as the Marrow of, or the Marrow of Sacred Divinity, and his De Conscientia, uh, 1630, present nearly the entire scope of theology within the framework of covenants. In dealing with intelligent creatures, man and woman, God governs in a moral, intelligent way through covenants. This covenant, he says, is, as it were, a kind of transaction of God with the creatures, creature whereby God commands, promises, threatens, fulfills, and the creature binds itself in obedience to God so demanding, unquote. First, God covenanted with Adam in the covenant of creation, which is the covenant of the works. He offered Adam, the public person, a bargain or conditional covenant saying, do this and you will live. If you do it not, you shall die. Adam failed, but then in the very dawn of human history, Genesis 3, God made his second covenant, the unconditional covenant of grace. The history of the new covenant is the story of salvation. Not all theologians developed the covenant idea in exactly the same way as Ames, but his exposition illustrates the main lines of the doctrine. Although European rather than American, Ames helped to mold American Puritan thought, and he was one of the forerunners of American congregationalism. Many American settlers praised him as the learned doctor, and his medulla and de conscientia had a wide readership with medulla Uh, long-serving as a textbook at Harvard and Yale. Through the English Puritan writers, covenant theology entered New England Congregationalism. American versions of it can be found in the writings of John Cotton, Thomas Hooker, Thomas Shepard, Peter Bulkley, and many others. Scottish Presbyterians also brought their distinctive covenant doctrine to America. Another source of the covenant ideal is the Westminster Confession of Faith from 1647, a theological creed revered by Congregationalists, Presbyterians, and Baptists in both England and America. Outside of the Reformed tradition, however, the covenant concept was not nearly as prominent. Some Anabaptist groups, namely Amish, Huterites, and Mennonites, drew upon their understanding of covenant in forming communal and mutual aid groups. So, you know, in a nutshell, that's covenant theology. You can see that, you know, there, there could be 
some overlap in the way of thinking about dispensations versus covenants, but these two run in opposite direction. You have, you know, timeline wise, this covenant theology developed basically in the, you know, around the Reformation period, 1500s. Um, can, you know, they would say connects back. It's just, it's not that it was new, um, but it connected back. It was just a way of systematizing uh, the biblical data uh, in a very specific way. So, you know, you could also argue that for the dispensational side. Um, that even though that wasn't developed till you know Darby in the 1800s and further by Dallas Theological Seminary, um, that it was just a systematization of what was already in the Bible to begin with. So, uh, but you know that's that's where you'll want to dive in and say, okay, what what is each system saying? What is the biblical data propping up each? Which one does a better job of explaining the biblical data and, and fitting them together in a systematic whole? And, you know, we do, we, we, systematic theology is necessary and it's good. It, it just, it basically presupposes the idea that truth is coherent, you know, and if it's coherent, then, you know, if, as you understand and they come together, truth should cohere together in a logical framework. And so systematic theology at its best tries to put together that framework in a way that um, does justice to biblical teaching and pulls it together in a way that can be understood and lived out um, consistently. So you see there the Puritans had this covenant theology. They tended to be post-millennial as well. So I'm going to jump into that one before I reach read uh, amillennialism. So post-millennialism, the belief that the return of Christ will take place after the millennium, which may be a literal period of peace and prosperity, or else a symbolic representation of the final triumph of the gospel. This new age will come through Christian teaching and preaching. The Holy Spirit will use such activity to shape a new world characterized by prosperity, peace, and righteousness. Evil will not be totally eliminated, but it will be reduced to a minimum because the moral and spiritual influence of the church will be greatly increased. During the new age, Christians will solve many of humankind's most persistent social, economic, and educational problems. The millennium will not necessarily be limited to 1,000 years because the number can be used symbolically. The period closes with the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and the last judgment. Postmillennialism is often dismissed by premillennialists as a Christian version of the secular idea of progress, but it was actually formulated by Puritan theologians in the 17th century long before the ideas of the 18th century Enlightenment popularized the belief in progress. The classic expression of postmillennialism is found in the work of Anglican commentator Daniel Whitby, in, from, who lived from 1638 to 1726. His view was adopted by many later Protestant ministers and theologians, including Jonathan Edwards and the leaders of the Protestant missionary movement during the 19th and early 20th centuries. Despite the pessimism of recent times, postmillennialism continues to be popular among many of the Reformed churches. And so, um, you know, you can see there the connection, postmillennialism and covenant theology in the Puritans who, you know, many argue laid the intellectual foundation really for what became um, the, the intellectual background for the founding of the nation. Um, if you, th- we, we interviewed Joe Boot, you know, earlier this season, 
and he's got a book, you know, the book we reference called The Mission of God, where he really goes in depth of the Puritans and, and post-millennial theology. He is a post-mill guy as well, but argues that their vision of the mission of the church is what built the good parts of this nation. And then, you know, basically um, pulling away from that into kind of a dualistic outlook or um, maybe Gnostic outlook or pietism and dispensationalism, those kind of views really <clears throat> let, let us away from being salt and light in our culture, which is why, you know, partially why we find ourselves in the, in the trouble that we find ourselves in today. And that, you know, that, that's part of, you know, what Boot highlights and, and argues in his book and other books as well. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's sort of like a real quick version of the, of the post-mill theology. Amillennialism is, you know, it's, it's not too different from that, but let me read this, just, just a couple short paragraphs here. It says, The view that the, the, the 1,000 years of Revelation 21 through 10 is not a literal millennial rule of Christ on earth, but a symbolic reference to the period between the ministry of Christ and his second coming. Amillennialism teaches that there will be a continuous development of good and evil in the world until the return of Christ, when the dead shall be raised and the last judgment conducted. This interpretation emphasizes the present reality of the kingdom of God as Christ rules his church through the word and, and the spirit. There will not be a future perfect and glorious age until the establishment of the new heaven and new earth. Thus, Revelation 20 refers to the souls of the believers reigning with Christ in heaven. Continuing on, amillennialism was given its most influential expression in the writings of the church father, Augustine. Okay, so the, he's links that with amillennialism rather than post. Uh, the eschatology of the early church was dominated by premillennialism, but with the excesses of Montanus, the allegorical interpretation popularized by Origen, and the legalization of Christianity by Constantine, the countercultural emphasis of primitive Christianity began to die out. Augustine's interpretation of the book of Revelation as referring to the church and its struggle with evil became the dominant view of Roman Catholic Christianity. The major Protestant traditions, including the Lutheran, Reformed, and Anglican, also accepted amillennialism, and such statements as the Augsburg Confession, the 39 Articles, and the Westminster Confession condemn premillennialism. Most of the leading churches of the 20th century follow amillennial eschatology. So, um, yeah, I, again, I would say probably most evangelical churches pre-mill, but if, you know, you broaden it out to, I don't know, what we might call more mainline denominations and stuff like that, they would, then maybe you could get that number of A-mill advocates up. But, um, yeah, so that's just a quick, uh, just a quick walk through there on the, the overall view. So, where does that leave us here? Why does why does it even matter? So, let me try to try to pull this together here. So, basically, if you're in the post mill or a mill camps, typically you're not going to be in the Zionist category. Okay, so you're not going to connect Israel um, and the, and the fulfilled promise of this land to modern Jews. That whole thing to to old covenant Israel. Um, you're not going to see a, a continuation between those two. If you're a pre-mill, especially dispensationalist, you are. 
So um, that's one reason you'll kind of see these these different camps. What I want to do is is recommend that you go listen to the the following presentation. This will really help you understand kind of the the systems in place even better. So I'm going to link these uh, to the bottom of in, in the show notes. So I think it would be well worth your time. These are these are really good in helping you understand the the, the different eschatologies and how they connect with Zionism. So the first one's going to be, uh, I'm going to send you one with uh, Jeff Durbin. He's a pastor. Uh, you probably have seen him floating around on YouTube with Apologia. He was a hardcore dispensationalist, like, you know, just <clears throat> maps on the wall, looking for newspapers, you know, waiting for the third temple kind of guy. Now he's a post mill advocate and, and you know he just has a good way of explaining the differences and, and giving his perspective and kind of answering questions you know how do you explain this passage how do you explain that one and why do you hold this view that kind of thing there's uh the next one is going to be joel webbin uh with right response ministries he's interviewing uh andrew isker and they're talking about specifically a lot of the stuff with israel from a post mill perspective they i think they each have different views on romans 11 i want to say joel <clears throat> holds that there will be kind of this end time coming to christ for you know all of israel the modern jews and as andrew i think sees that as uh fulfilled in the first century um, before the, the the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Um, the third one I'm going to give you is Doug Wilson, uh, where he's being interviewed by Remnant Radio. And I think those guys are pre-mill, but they're interviewing him on post-mill. And so they kind of ask him questions that you might think of um, if you were on that. Then I'm going to give you a discussion between three different guys, each arguing their own eschatological perspective one is pre-mill then doug is the post-mill there's a guy a mill and john piper is who's a pre-mill is hosting the discussion uh, i'm also going to link john harris interviewed a a, a, a an, an historian from liberty university specifically talking about israel they go into a lot of the geopolitical stuff as well but they are both uh, historic pre-millennialists um so john harris conversations that matter i like a lot of his stuff <clears throat> interviewing the history professor from lu both of those guys are pre-mill and then just if you're interested in more like from the, the zionist side you can go michael brown's got a book on uh christian anti anti-semitism on Amazon, or you can go to his line of fire uh, website and just look up, you know, Zionism, anti-Semitism, and he'll talk about, you know, his, his critiques of replacement theology and um, all that kind of stuff. Now, with that, like, uh, Vody Bakken, one of my favorites, you know, he's a, he's an A-mill guy who says he lives post-mill. <laughs> um, I think Sam Say, who we've had on the show, I believe he's A-mill. Um, post mill is going to be, you know, you got Douglas Wilson, Jared Longshore, uh, time and Klein, who I'm hoping to get on the, uh, podcast here in a little bit, uh, 80 Robles, guys like that, uh, cross politic, those guys, post mill, pre mill, so many on that side, like I said, cause that's sort of the, the default evangelical position. So most, most are going to be that we would probably know of are going to, going to fall in that camp, including, you know, Biola, big, big pre-mill, all the, all the profs there, uh, people we've had on the show. Let's see, uh, Elisa, um, 
Childers, you know, the, the impact I think most of those guys, Sean McDowell, would hold to the pre-mill eschatology. So my my so if I'm weighing in on these things, what I, what I would say, given those eschatologies, I would say no matter what position you land on, I would say live as a post-mill. So like Vody says, he's an A-mill who lives like a post-mill because the, the, the injunction to us in the Bible is not to not, you know, Jesus does talk about, you know, understanding the signs of times, that kind of thing. And you can apply that as a pre-mill guy to the end of the age. But I think most historic pre-mill guys would admit that, you know, even Jesus said, you know, these, there were certain times, but even of his return, he doesn't even know the hour, um, the day or the hour. Um, so what I would say is like, getting caught up in that kind of theological speculation almost never benefits anybody and it and it inevitably distracts from occupy until he comes to to really fulfilling the great commission which i would say is broader than just reaching souls that's a whole nother discussion but to be salt and light you know at the very minimum to be salt and light in the in the culture requires thinking long-term and not thinking, you know, that because another thing has happened that, you know, in Israel that the rapture is about to come. And I just, I noticed that happening time and time again. It's very interesting. I I read a book recently by uh, Gary DeMar on end times. He's a, he's a post-mill, you know, partial preterist, which is another topic that's typically connected to post-millennialism about how to understand prophecies in the New Testament. Um, but anyways, he he has a whole chapter dedicated to all these hard predictions starting maybe even before John Nelson Darby, but especially from Darby onward with people just predicting, you know, uh, Jesus is coming back and here's the signs, you know, 88 reasons why he's coming back in 1988, huge book, you know, the late great planet Earth and and just the impact that that had on many people of having them disengage from the public square, from being salt and light in the society, which which has contributed much to the, the reason things are so bad now. And so I think if, if, if recent history and just broad history and church history has, is any indicator, it's we should learn from it to, to not get caught up in trying to predict, you know, if you hold to rapture theology, trying to predict this rapture and thinking that everything comes up, we need to run and just, you know, run and hide and thinking short term, you know, some people to the point where they don't even, you know, think they want to have kids because, well, you know, things are just going to get worse and worse. They're starting to implant the chip, the chips now. So, and this is just, I think this runs against good, solid biblical theology going all the way back to the, the cultural mandate of being fruitful, multiplied, taking dominion, being salt and light. That needs to be the first priority emphasis. And then if you, you know, want to get it, think through the, the prophecy stuff is behind that, you know, fine, so be it. But don't let that um, block you and don't let it become this thing where, man, every time something happens, I just, I, I'm noticing that like the messages that happened that Sunday at many uh, dispensational churches. It was just so, you know, uh, just badly predictable and just continues to lull people to to sleep where what we need to do right now, I really truly believe, man, is, is to rise up as the church 
and apply the teachings of Christ to, you know, disciple in the nations. Part of that is teaching the nations to obey all that he's commanded, starting with learning ourselves, our families, spreading out, you know, to people we have influence, to, to, to taking the ways of God that are taught throughout all of Scripture and applying them to life. So that's that's one aspect that I would say. Then I would say, like, for the, for our, you know, Zionist brothers and sisters, um, I, you know, again, I don't have a hard, I don't have a strong view on this point yet, still working, still kind of, you know, assessing all the, the different reasons for and against it. But at this point, what I would say is just, you know, we got to be careful uh, applying that in a way where everything that Israel always does is right. Um, and so um, even even for the Zionists, I think that I think Michael Brown, for instance, would, would even agree with that. Like you can be a Zionist and still recognize that certain governmental systems have been infiltrated, that there's certain leaders um, who are wicked, there's certain things that they do wrong, certain things they do right. Now, that uh, if you can put aside the idea here that I'm trying in any way to make a moral equivalency between Israel and Hamas, that's, that's not the case at all. I'm just saying, like, you have to, you have, to have a realistic, uh, even as a Zionist, have a, a realistic understanding of the people and the leaders within Israel as you stand with them and as you kind of take take up for them based on this theology that know that that no matter what this this is their land we stand with them in the same way really that you can stand for America like right now you could say man I'm I'm for America as an American I want to see America flourish but I think that you know the people that are in charge are really wicked and evil and doing some bad things and we we're trying to you know, stand up against their actions and get things back on track. Now, I'm not saying anybody in Israel is fits that category. I'm just saying, in theory, you have to be open to that kind of discussion. We're saying, like, man, yeah, I stand with Israel, but this and th- this and that person, you know, this Mossad or you know whoever, you know Netanyahu, this and that. You don't have to whitewash everything. Just because you stand with Israel, uh, that would be my only, you know, thing to the to the Zionists is is understand the nuances and the complexities involved, even as you take your theological stand. Um, and then, you know, with the guys that are like against it, I think we against Zionism and all that kind of thing. I think that sometimes there's been too much of a I don't know, just a, a brass againstness and 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 taking a lack of a lack of care with the historical complexities as well and the emotionals the emotions that can be you know that are attached to this and and because basically like for instance um i think nikki haley tweeted this today you know she said to not be a zionist is to be an anti-semite and that's just completely false. Like, and you'll see that if you go, if you watch any of the post mill guys that I recommended that are not Zionists, I think to a number they would all agree that in this particular case with Hamas coming in with Israel, and just in general, like in history, because Israel tends to um, operate out of a Christian framework of just law theory. Um, 
Whereas you have Hamas and those guys who are not operating from that ethical place at all. They would end up standing with Israel, just not for the theological reasons that Zionists would. So I think to a, to a, to a number, all of these guys would say that, especially in this particular case we're in, um, Israel would not be in the wrong to respond and respond with, with strength and, and to basically, you know, really, really do what they have to do to overcome this thing with Hamas and to make sure this doesn't happen again in the future. You know, how that all happens and how much we're involved with that, they would have different things to say. But And to that Nikki Haley statement is just uh, patently false. It's blatantly false, demonstrably false. And sometimes I wonder if Brown borders on that idea um, because, but maybe, maybe he doesn't, but um, I do think that we have to have to understand that to not be a Zionist is not to be an anti-Semite in any case. Now you do have, obviously all anti-Semites would not be Zionists. So sort of like the logic of, um, you know, all, all, all bears are animals, but not all animals are bears, you know? So all anti-Semites would be anti-Zionists, but not all non-Zionists would be anti-Semites. Um, many in that camp, like I said, are, are not. So um, that that will hopefully give you a picture. Now we're going to talk more about the religion uh, that's, you know, our young people being indoctrinated and why it lends itself to sort of the opposite side where they're promoting kind of blindly in many cases Palestine and even Hamas in, in some cases. And so with 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 little to no understanding of any of the issues involved, um, but it's based on their religion of wokeism. Um, so again, dispensationalists, you know, live like post mills <laughs> as much as possible. Um, think you know generations down the road and occupy till he comes. Prep and plan and 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 just live out the Christian faith. Apply it to every era of life. Um, Zionists, you know, understand the complexities, non-Zionists understand the complexities. And I think, you know, as we're praying for these issues, we all could stand to learn and grow about the things that are involved. Um, Next time, I think what I want to do is get into just a little bit of just war theory and what it is. And so that even if you don't have necessarily theological commitments um, toward or against Zionism, you can begin to think through it from a Christian general perspective of like how should nations respond to violence and um, when is war just and, and what means of war are just. And then then you can, you know, at least have a framework to start from. Uh, and then after that, maybe we'll go into the a little bit. I don't know how far we'll go into that, but the particulars of this scenario that's that's currently going on. So anyways. Like I said, check out the the links below, um, and I'd love to hear back from you if you do get a chance to listen to some of these things that I'm recommending. Let me know what you think about it. All right. Um, thanks again for joining us for this week's uh, or this episode of Free Mind Podcast, and we'll see you next time. Uh-oh.